Good morning and welcome to Ordinary Life, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. And I want to start by uh, acknowledging um, the, the indispensable role that Holly Hudley has played the last year in doing Ordinary Life and certainly this week because my computer died and I had to do everything on my iPad, and I couldn't have done it without you. I'm just going to say, nice recovery, Bill. <laughs> Thank you, and you're welcome, and it's been a pleasure. Uh, I, I, I really am grateful. <laughs> we are having good registration. I want, I want to say this, get this up. Um, I have talked to John Tucker now a couple times, and thanks to Wayne Herbert, I think, Wayne's the one that sent me this, got a link to a sermon uh, that John preached a few years ago that's on YouTube about the um, Bible, indispensable and timeless, or dispensable and timeless, something like that. It's about 20 minutes. It's very good. I mean, really good. And uh, the more I've talked to John, uh, the more excited I am about his being here. Um, I don't know if he's going to talk a lot about the book. He might. Yeah. I don't know. But if you have not read the book, I suggest starting with the last chapter uh, and then going reading the book. Or you can go on Amazon and read some of the reviews of the book. Uh, it's not an easy read. It's kind of philosophically bent and requires some thought. But it is, I think, the the. It's the kind of thing that you should read, not trying to like get every single word, but sort of, sort of step back and try to get the the ethos of it, like the the sort of general statement of it. If you read uh, when the disciple comes of age, or miracle, and we're going to refer to today, this is like the next step after that. This book is because they both talk about. Um, Having a a um, religion that is free from doctrine. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah. So I'm really excited about it. Tuesday night, seven o'clock. Registration is free. It's open to anybody, and I really encourage you to join us for that. Also, I want to talk about money. Yeah. So this is pretty amazing because you guys who watch and participate are some of the most generous people we know. And just at the end of 20, what year are we in? Just at the end of 2020, we gave almost $26,000 away to various organizations in and around Houston doing the work to make life a little better for those who are underserved or poor. And then we, here we are only in March of 2021, and we have gotten somewhere close to $15,000 in unrestricted donations, and we were able to give 10 of that away just this last week to uh, several organizations who are trying to do immediate relief, um, COVID relief, this winter storm relief. One is um, Restoration Team, which is working to help people get their homes back in order. The second is BLM HTX, who's doing a mutual aid campaign, which means money is going directly to families who need help with rent relief, groceries, fixing parts of their home, et cetera. So it's a very direct impact. Um, the third is Main Street Ministries, 
And the fourth is a food pantry at another um, church called Boynton Church. So we are so grateful for y'all's generosity and the ability to put funds toward immediate use, especially in this time, because the need is so great. And we had given earlier this year $5,000. I mean, so, it's just incredible. Yeah, and that money went directly to relief of, uh, of people in the St. Paul's community yeah. who are really struggling financially because of COVID and for re relief in that. And I also want to acknowledge, and uh, Wayne Herbert, if you're watching, um, I'd like to get a page going on the Ordinary Life website for the Ordinary Life women so that if women would like to connect with that group, they can figure out ways to do that. The Ordinary Life women have been hugely involved in charitable work around COVID relief, around the, the winter storm relief, and I applaud them for what they're doing um, um, Lynn Schroth has been the, the leader of that group. I think she's stepping down soon and somebody else will take leadership, but it's a group of women who meet once a month to uh, study things. This year they've um, been studying uh, being anti-racist and that's led them to a connection with the Boynton Church. And it's just, a, it's a great organization for study and, and doing good. Thank you, thank you, th thank you all for your generosity and, and the fact that we are able to make that kind of difference. It's felt in our community and um, we're grateful for that. A few years ago, I saw an article in the news about um, televangelist named Craflo Dollar Creflo Dollar. Yeah, I think Josh sent you that um, video about him. And he was getting his third or fourth jet. Well, your jets are going out to serve the, or to feed the homeless or feed people. Well, who it need started food. a joke. Yeah. And um, I, I, I know that sometimes people take things seriously when they <laughs> should. I'm not getting a jet. So. Mm -hmm. I think but, Bill's starting to feel self-conscious about that. I think he wants to be very clear. There are no plans to buy Bill a jet, but we can get him a video game in which he could simulate flying a plane. That could be fun. This afternoon, I'm going to fly my drone. Okay. Or we could just get you a drone. I got a drone. <laughs> I haven't flown it. I got a drone for Christmas, and I haven't flown it, but I'm going to fly it this afternoon. So if you hear a big explosion somewhere in Southwest <laughs> Houston, you know I flew it into something. Yeah. So whatever. So oh, that's, goodness. So I, I want to thank uh, Olivia Watton, Watson and William Budge and John Watson and Tim Leatherwood for making sure that this happens. And uh, I want to say to you, no matter who you are or where you are in your spiritual journey, you're welcome here, whether you're a pajama person or a wine and cheese person or, or mm -hmm. whatever. We are glad that you are here. So one of the goals that we have in offering these teachings is to help each of us bring enlarged lives and living into an ever-enlarging understanding of ourselves and of others and of the world in which we live. That's what we get a chance to do when we wake up every morning, is to figure out how to enlarge our own lives and to bring that enlarged living into the world. I think this is what Jesus did in his teachings, which we're going to continue to talk about. But I'd like to begin talking a little bit about us first. It, it, it takes most of us a good while, and some people never make the transition, to grow up. 
Um, one of the reasons I like the last two or three books that Daramuda Murka has written is that they're all about this primary commitment of, of growth. When the disciple comes to age, what it means to have a mature spirituality. And there's some people who never psychologically, emotionally leave home. Um, I can look back and see that my own parents had little awareness of the things that we do now, little awareness of the unconscious, of its power in our lives. That information simply was not available to them. And they lived with the fears and pressures that came out of their families of origin. I had the privilege a number of years ago, many years ago now, to bring my parents to Houston for an intense week of family therapy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, it was just amazing to me what I learned in that time that I'd never known before. How my parents met, uh, their early years of marriage, what struggles they had, what secrets were kept. Because one of the rules, in, at least in the family where I grew up, is that we didn't talk. We didn't talk about things that really mattered. So. Um, it was a very, very interesting thing. I spent my early years, as I suspect most people in our demographic do, in a context of immensely conflicting messages. The church where I was taken talked a lot about love of God and how God loves all the little children of the world. Black and yellow, brown or white, they are precious in his sight. We sang that song on a regular basis. But at the same time, the dominant message in the culture was fear of other and profound racism. The message of our recent history in this country has been an appeal to the good old days. Now, what is longed for in the good old days are not really the days when polio was a real possibility and there was no penicillin, but there was a certain kind of certainty that kept people feeling safe with fixed categories of belief and behavior. So my psychology training has taught me that people generally make one of three choices in dealing with their formative years. First, we repeat what we saw and experienced. Second, we swear never to be anything like what our parents were or what we grow up with, which of course only binds us more tightly to those people, beliefs, and behaviors. Or third, we seek to fix the problem. The most common thing we do is the first. And especially since we are young and in need of security, that makes a lot of sense. We choose the familiar. We choose what we grew up with. <clears throat> there is a saying, uh, he who never travels thinks mother is the only cook, <laughs> and that's true. When we travel, we move into another and a larger world, and this is when the values of tribalism are transcended and new life comes to a person or to a group. <clears throat> I've used this personal example before, so those of you who've heard it, please forgive the repetition. But I grew up knowing that if my mother and father had gone to a different church, if I had been born into a different country, uh, nation, country, that I would be that. I would be in that church. I would be in that country, and that would feel like a, a but. I lucked out. 
<laughs> I got born into the doctrinally correct church. We were the one that were, was right more than all the others. I got born into the right country, not only just the right country, the right part of the country, the right state, because we had the correct food. We spoke with the correct accent. We had the correct beliefs and, and mores. When I had my first interpersonal relationship group, IPR group, in my clinical training, I discovered that every person in that group, there were no women in my training group at the time, but every guy in my training group who had come from all over the country, some from other countries, who had very different religious persuasions, some had no religious persuasion at all, they felt exactly the same way about their background as I felt about mine. And of course, over the years, the wider I've traveled, the more I've seen the truth of this. We were traveling in Turkey once, and the woman who was our tour guide that day had gone behind the bus to smoke a cigarette, mm -hmm. and I went with her. Not to smoke, smoke your cigarette. but just to talk. <laughs> and we had, as a country, uh, just a few months before, invaded Iraq. You remember that war that was going to be shock and awe and be over in three weeks? In the 90s? Yeah. Yeah. I remember exactly where I was when I found out it had started or had been declared. And, and, and so she and I were talking about that, and I was being apologetic because it was a mistake. Now we know that looking back. Mm -hmm. like We know a lot of things. And she said to me, she said, you know, um, we all want the same thing. We want our children to be safe. We want to enjoy our families. We want to have a decent living. We want the prospect that our children can have a good future. We all want the same thing. Everybody. Mm -hmm. It's the politicians who mess things up. Mm -hmm. And I thought, there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. So as I see it now, each of us has a sacred obligation to bring this enlarged being into an ever more and increasingly inclusive world. And this is what the teachings of Jesus were about. He called people out of their current understanding of what defined them into a larger and more inclusive world. And he called them to bring enlarged being into that world into which he called them. Now, most of us who have grown up in the church, have any religious language whatsoever, have heard the world that he called people into, referred to as the kingdom of God, sometimes as the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> because Matthew, who was a good Jew, wrote to a Jewish audience, he didn't want to use the word God, so the translators put in the word heaven. Hmm which has created an entirely different meaning for what we think of the kingdom. I just anticipate some of what Holly's going to say, and I'm going to say later, is Jesus didn't talk about the kingdom. He talked from the kingdom. Actually, the kingdom is a word we're going to replace in a minute, but he talked from that experience and called people into that. We're using uh, these phrases from the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, and or as Eugene Peterson, uh, no, Neil Douglas Scott translates it, fill me with your creativity so that I may be empowered 
to bear the fruit of your mission. There are a couple of things that you said, when, especially when talking about travel. And you, know, you were kind of speaking of metaphorical travel away from this family of origin or from our tribal mentalities to sort of get an enlarged view of the world. And there's sort of distinct ways that people travel in the world. Sometimes we go to a place and we say, oh, I'm so lucky that I don't live here. Or I'm so lucky that I'm not them. And the second we say that, we've just distanced ourselves mm -hmm. from the person or the reality or the situation. We've made them other. And instead, I think if we travel, no matter what, we should go with the eye of, how am I like them? So that them don't say them. You know, but so many of us travel with sort of voyeuristic um, enjoyment sort of mentality rather than let me be here and really observe and learn. So the quality of our travel has something to do with how we learn how to bring our enlarged being into the world too. Right. But anyhow, we're not here to talk be tour guides. <laughs> so we are actually here to be tour guides actually. Um, I found a website last week while we were doing our research that places various translations or iterations of the Lord's Prayer line by line and side by side. So for each line, there were about five different translations that showed up. And as we talk about what it means to be a trickster today, I think language is the ultimate trickster. You know, language can be used to give something a variety of meanings. And we see that just in these two translations of the same line. Here are some of my favorite interpretations of the line, thy kingdom come. Create your reign of unity now through our fiery hearts and willing hands. Your rule springs into existence as our arms reach out to embrace all creation. Come into the bedroom of our hearts. Prepare us for the marriage of power and beauty. And from this divine union, let us birth new images for a new world of peace. So even the traditional that I grew up saying is so incredible. And I'm not sure if I've ever paused long enough to into the rushed saying of it in church. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> to really let it sink in. To let that full meaning. Thy kingdom come. So this is not Jesus indicating that he's going to hand us the keys to some proverbial kingdom out there somewhere. This is Jesus directly challenging the boundaries of that three-tiered universe, the heaven, earth, hell universe, in a three-tiered society that invites us to say, let's expand the universe. Let's expand the kingdom or what we mean by it. Thy kingdom come. It's so different than let's go to the kingdom. How do we get to the kingdom? Whatever God's presence is, it's already right here. And the keys are in our hands. There's nowhere to get to. I think Bill and I have reiterated that or tried to over the last couple of months. A lot of the translations that I read from here indicate this unity of heaven and earth. This unity of the above and the below, the here and the there. Of the sacred and profane even. It's so intimate. Come into the bedroom of our hearts. Martin Buber wrote, the philosopher who wrote, I Vow, the primary aspiration of all history 
is a genuine community of human beings. Buber maintains that a, a true community consists of people who have a common, immediate relation to a living center. And just by virtue of this common center, have an immediate relationship to one another. Mm -hmm. Man, and he uh, means humans, become an I through you. Here again, the lines pleading for unity that uh, I called upon. Let us birth new images for a new world of peace. Create your reign of unity now. So interdependence and wholeness as the sum of all parts, a kind of gestalt theology, if you will, is the nature of reality. It's not the same. Unity is not the same as harmony. I think it's easy to confuse unity and harmony. The way that it's put in terms of universe formation is that there is unity and diversity. In other words, all of the opposites, all of the polarities, all of the, the goods and the bads have to work together to create unity. There is unity in difference. There's unity in diversity. So unity, when we think about it in a, in a, in a social context, must preserve one's uniqueness in community. So the right to be an individual self inside of a community. It can't be achieved in any true fashion if there's not complete freedom. So let's look at freedom in two ways. I was reading a, a chapter from a book this week by Robert Burt in which he talked about situational freedom, how one can move through real space and time, how the laws support or deny one's bodily or situational freedom. And there's also existential freedom, which is spiritual freedom how one identifies with the numinous, sacred mystery. And existential freedom can be achieved regardless of your situational freedom. But of course, the two feed one another. This is the crux of this segment of the Lord's Prayer, I think. Let situational and existential freedom be one. Let our earth represent our ideals about heaven. Let mind and spirit come together, body and soul, heaven and earth, however you want to say it. Thy kingdom come. I think that's such an exciting anticipatory line. And the magic is that we already inhabit that kingdom. It is easy, however, to look out at it and go, wait, so this is it? All full of COVID and racism and economic disparity and environmental devastation? Yeah, this is it. The other is that this is the reality that we have co-created and what Jesus was trying to get us to see we have a part to play in this kingdom creation we have a say in how it turns out we need some radical reimagining here there's no blueprint for this kingdom for this kingdom on earth what we want to recreate or reimagine because it's not a stone castle with a mighty fortress in fact it's not a place at all it's an idea in a way of being. Right now, I would say this whole year has been kind of a trickster. <laughs> um, this whole year and change has been kind of a trickster. It's, this is a time, though, for discovery, for curiosity and invention. It's a time for re-envisioning what we mean by community, society, and even democracy, so that we may call into being a kingdom of more complete human belonging. This is both extremely hard and incredibly easy. 
We already exist in this way, in the mystery, but we need to open our eyes to what is hidden there. Have you ever watched a spider weave its web? I have. Yeah, I, I was on a program not too long ago in Northern California, which involved um, camping outside for a week and really just immersing in nature and listening to the messages of nature. And I watched what I think was an orb spider weave its web for over an hour. I just sat and watched it. How does it know how to do that? How can it make something so incredible and so intricate with such ease? I think because it lives and moves and has its being in its spideriness. It doesn't resist its own nature. It just is. This is what we find when we lean into the soft ground of our being as we talked about last week. We find ourselves inhabiting the way of being human. We find our humanness. And when we find our humanness, it's often thankless. No one thanks the spider for making its web, least of all its spider babies. Um, and it's and even more often, we don't live long enough to see sort of the fruits of our human efforts, the fruits of our labors. I think it was Howard Thurman who tells the story about an old man planting a pecan tree. And he said, why are you planting that tree, sir? You won't live long enough to eat from it. And he says, all my life, I've been eating from trees that I didn't plant. And that is, that's our humanness. What are we planting for our future generations? We can't expect affirmation or praise or even acknowledgement. It's great if we get it, but we can't expect it. We just do it anyway. We become people of the way who strive to build the kingdom across all of earth. If you want to meditate over some pretty ancient wisdom, but really beautiful words, pick up a good translation. Oh, that's really small. I'll read it out loud. Pick up a good translation of the Tao Te Ching. I love this translation by Ursula K. Le Guin. She's an author who, um, who in her translations of the Tao, brings a really feminine lens. And, and there's just certain themes that repeat over and over again in the Tao itself, but in her translation. Tao number 15 describes ancient people of the way, and I'll read it here. Once upon a time, people who knew the way were subtle, spiritual, mysterious, penetrating, and unfathomable. Since they're inexplicable, I can only say what they seemed like. Cautious, yes, as if wading through a winter river. Alert, as if afraid of the neighbors. Polite and quiet, like house guests. Elusive like melting ice, blank like uncut wood, empty like valleys, mysterious, yes, they were like troubled water. Who can by stillness, little by little, make what is troubled grow clear? Who can by movement, little by little, make what is still grow quick? To follow the way is not to need fulfillment. Unfulfilled, one may live on needing no renewal. I think I'm going to have to get this book. Yeah. She, it's a really great translation. I, and she has captions underneath that sort of explain where she was coming from. You know, I bought that book of prayers that you have used from the Ireland mm -hmm. community. The Caramula. Yeah. Yeah, community. Yeah. It's a beautiful one, too. Yeah, I really is. like it. I actually have one in our talk today <laughs> from that book. But, you know, to get this, that, that the way is subtle, spiritual, mysterious, penetrating, and unfathomable, it could help us to invite in our trickster archetype. How can we be 
all of these things at once. The trickster is mischievous and left unchecked can be malicious. But if the trickster is incorporated and listened to, then it challenges conventions and rules, it's capable of forward thinking, and is highly intelligent. Going way, way back, you could say that the snake in the Garden of Eden was often thought of as the malicious trickster. But I think a, look, a different look at it could also be, instead of being the cause of Eve's downfall, that the snake was the giver of insight and wisdom. The tricksters possess what we call crazy intelligence. <laughs> you know, those ideas that seem a little bit dangerous that we should not talk about in polite company, but they're also just crazy enough to be possible. I don't know, something like, the kingdom of heaven is actually here on earth, or the universe is expanding in all directions all the time. So I remember the first time in ordinary life years ago when I suggested that we might look at Jesus as a stand-up comic. Uh -huh. <laughs> and several people went like that. <laughs> Wait, I thought I was supposed to take him seriously. <laughs> well, mm -hmm. that's the way the trickster works, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I want to start at the end and come back and see how, how our thinking um, is being influenced by this notion of embracing the inner trickster and seeing Jesus as an archetype for that. Okay, so remember I said Jesus didn't speak about but from the kingdom. That's a way to change your thinking. Over the years, my, my understanding of the, what we call the kingdom of God has changed dramatically. As I indicated earlier, I started, like everybody, thinking it's out there, it's a place, it's something to get to. And not as Holly just said, it's, it's a place where we already are. And we have a tendency to make all sorts of value judgments about that because it's not like we had hoped it would be. Um, I also understood the kingdom of God to be after death mm. because it was translated as the kingdom of heaven. Now, um, in the Greek, which was the language spoken in the world where the gospel narratives were written, the actual word used for kingdom is better translated domain or empire. And that was to contrast it with the Roman Empire. God's rule was in contrast to that of Caesar. And those who were powerless, and that's everybody in Jesus' audience, would know that Caesar's rule trumped everything else. And, and Jesus is saying, nope, God really runs the show. Step into this reality. Now, Alice McKenzie, in her book on the parables, says that from the parables we learn four things about the domain of God. First of all, it is not under our control. Second, it shows up where and when we least expect it. Third, it disrupts business as usual. And four, it is a reign of justice and forgiveness. Now, you know those four things are not on anybody's wishes for how I hope this day goes. <laughs> we don't like any of these four things. Particularly, it, it, we just don't. 
we, we like to stay in control. We like knowing what's going to happen. We like to have our plans come to fruition. So the way that Jesus talked about this rule of God was not just fresh and evocative. It was life transforming for those who entered into it or better allowed it to come alive in them. So Jesus said it was something the poor understood better than the rich. It was like the way seeds grew into plants that produced an unexpectedly large harvest. It ends up looking like children at play. It was something present in very unexpected ways. Now this is very important. Well, why is that? Because our tendency to think is to think that we know about this thing called the kingdom of God. And, as I said, we don't like surprises. We don't like being in control. That's why we like doctrine. Doctrine nails things down. <laughs> and that's why America later works and John Tucker's works can cause people to hold on to the edge of their seat. Where are we going out of this? That's so interesting. All, for the last couple of weeks, I've been fixing a lot of things at home. And I think I know why I've been kind of honing in on these things that have a very definite, like, if you put the screw here, this will work. It's because it's, it's doable. It's manageable, right? And, mm -hmm. and the world feels so not manageable right now. Mm -hmm. So there's some satisfaction in, like, getting your... I think that's the reason I love to cook. Yeah. Or one of the reasons yeah. is that I can see something tangible result yeah. that I have some control over. Yeah. and yeah. It's enjoyable and creative yeah. and all yeah. that. And... It's not like this, where we spend hours and hours and hours preparing and then doing this and... And go, well, how did that land? Well, yeah. <laughs> how did that go? That's right. Sorry. Yeah. So another, uh, uh, I've indicated this already, another shift for me began to occur when I found and started reading uh, Daramud Muruku's works. I don't know how I got to him in the first place. I think it was through a book of his that's not even on the Kindle. It's an older book called Quantum Theology. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you read yes. that? Yeah. That was my introduction to him. And then I just started reading. He's a very prolific writer. Uh, and we do, we're trying to get him to do a webinar with us. Uh, it's, it will be complicated because he lives in Dublin. What I have come to believe based on his work, and he's quite a scholar, is that the word kingdom and domain, empire, were really creations of the ones who wrote the Jesus narratives. Miracle calls what we refer to as the kingdom of God, he, he calls it the companionship of empowerment. Now, we do not know, and, and I have spent years involved with the Jesus Seminar. I love what I've learned there. I love the associations with people I've made there. We really don't know what Jesus said because we don't have what he said in Aramaic, which is the language that he spoke. Um, and he didn't write it down. And he didn't like write Socrates. it down. Socrates. Socrates never wrote a thing. <laughs> but he talked about this thing, yeah. this community of uh, a companionship of empowerment and his disciples didn't get it so they asked him questions 
and 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 they they were they were seeking clarity. If you read the gospel narratives, you'll see that all the all the time they're saying, "What are you talking about? What is this kingdom like?" And and the, what they wanted is what we want. They wanted a rational answer. They wanted a nice, neat definition. And what did Jesus give them? A joke. Consider a, the lilies of the field. A story. <laughs> hey, how about this? These laborers went into the vineyard very early in the morning and worked all day. And then the vineyard owner hired some at the end of the day. And he paid them all just the same. That's a kingdom. And they were saying, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. What are, this doesn't make any sense. And we're still struggling over some of the, the things that he said. Because the parables don't fit into neat doctrinal compartments. In, indeed, as I say, they're more the work of a stand-up comic, a, a jester, <coughs> than a theologian or, or a philosopher. So we're proposing that the trickster is a door, the clown archetype, through which we can pass not only to understand the community empowerment, but also to help create it. And, and, and to help enter into it. We have to bypass our usual ways of thinking and enter into what goes beyond the grasp of the thinking mind uh, in order to grasp it, if that makes sense. So the archetype that we're suggesting is found throughout all traditions in human history. Because we're so familiar with the parables of Jesus, um, I go to other traditions to learn about the trickster. We could have gone to Native American and learned the about the coyote. The raven. The raven. I'll talk a little bit about La Loba. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. the one that I go to is um, in Sufism, Nasrudin. Nasrudin is, uh, appears to be a complete idiot. But he's an actually wise and cunning man whose tricks contain brilliant lessons about life. Um, so here's the story about Nasrudin. One day he was out walking, and he found a man sitting on the side of the road, and the man was crying. What's the matter, my friend, asked Nasrudin. Why are you crying? I'm crying because I'm so poor, wailed the man. I have no money, and everything I own is in this little bag. Aha, said Nasrudin, who immediately grabbed the bag and ran as fast as he could until he was out of sight. Now I have nothing, cried the poor man, weeping still harder as he trudged along the road in the direction Nasrudin had gone. A mile away, he found his bag sitting in the middle of the road, and he immediately became ecstatic. Thank God! He cried out, I have all of my possessions back. Thank you, thank you. How curious, exclaimed Nesrudin, appearing out of the bushes by the side of the road. How curious that that same bag that made you weep now makes you ecstatic. That's a great story. I love that story. Yeah, it's a great story. So we all have this inner trickster, um, the one that craves breaking taboos and shattering useless ideologies. You know, that part of us is just a little playful, a little mischievous. Uh, definitely my youngest son has that. <laughs> that may be his archetype. If we ignore it, we get absorbed by superficiality. 
and deny ourselves playfulness. We, get, we become rigid or fearful. The power of the trickster is in his or her ability to help us question life, embrace uncertainty, and become receptive to seeing what is. That's why I referred to maybe this last year as the trickster. We've been shown a lot of what is. If we deny this expansive part of us, we get wily and fearful, full of ego, which tries, however fruitlessly, to stave off pain and suffering, uh, what John Tucker refers to as absolute grief. Mm. So our, our ego will fail us in that way. The trickster at its best helps us to integrate pain and suffering and create it into something new. So often the trickster is associated with male energy, um, a, a solo figure who wanders alone. Um, but let's recall this person who I'm betting everyone knows, Lucille Ball of I Love Lucy. I used to watch the reruns when I was little. I'm sure you grew up watching it to some extent. On the one hand, she plays this part of a homemaker, wife and mother, traditional roles for women of her era. On the other hand, she challenged the limitations of that role by being an outrageous and charming disruptor of the expectations of it. She pioneered a path for comedians, female comedians. The feminine archetypal near equivalent of the trickster is uh, one of them, is La Loba, or Wolf Woman. This is an old book from the mid-90s, maybe. Clarissa Estes' book, Women Who Run With the Wolves, explores the many roles of La Loba in various cultures. She is la que sabe, the one who knows, the feeder root to an entire instinctual system. She is in many ways an endangered species who has been driven to the margins. The margins, however, are not a place of victimhood and disappearance, but a place of resistance and expansion. The margins further the edges of God's kingdom. And La Loba teaches us to call up the psychic remains of the wild trickster soul and sing her into vital shape again. Did you paint this? No, I found it as an illustration of, of La Loba. I thought it was so cool. It's, it is yeah. really cool. The mandala and the woman shape-shifting, kind of. Mm -hmm. The trickster's a shape-shifter. I mean, she really is. I did, I did do this painting, however, um, a couple years ago. And it, and it started out so different than it is. It has an entire story that goes along with it. And underneath this image are about seven other layers that look nothing like this image, based on intense dreams and ended up being this wolf and a rabbit as the final product. And the wolf is howling luna moths into existence. I wrote this in creation story to accompany it based on the seven days of creation in Genesis. And it would take far too long to read. In short, it's about recovering the broken parts and reassembling them into something new. It's about co-evolution, how the things we perceive to be bad actually help us evolve into something better. This essentially is what the trickster can help us do. And she will have fun while doing it. Um, I'm going to offer just this little segment, um, a little parable to sum up this, how I see this painting. This is from day six of my writing. I cannot talk about motherhood without also talking about the wolves. I cannot talk about the wolves without talking about 
a dream. I had a single recurring nightmare throughout childhood of being chased by a wolf in human clothing. She wore red pants and a yellow shirt. She stood upright on hind legs but ran on all fours. This is, of course, absurd. The wolf, however, was entirely real to me. In every dream, she appeared friendly at first, smiling like your dog does with that big open mouth grin. And in every dream, I would speak to her, kind of wary of her kindness and poised to run when she gave chase. There was a moment when I thought, maybe this time will be different, but I was always wrong. She always chased me through the woods and through grass and every path and every dream led to a clearing. She never tired of chasing me. In the clearing, I would sometimes wake up with my heart pounding. And once I came upon a light, like one of those old fashioned street lamps, it lit a tall wire cage full of those marbled beach balls. I remember as a kid seeing those cages of beach balls in Target, stores like that. Mm -hmm. And I dove into this cage and I left the wolf stunned and confused. I had won the chase this time. The wolf had disappeared or maybe now as I look at it, been absorbed as part of me. I saw this dream very different as a kid. Now I think, wow, that was teaching me to absorb my own trickster, to be that sort of wily character. Mm -hmm. um, but what do you do about the wolf in the clearing if she is rabid? She will always be hungry, and this is the story of the painting. Thirsting for blood of smaller creatures, do we call the bear down for a paid assassination? Do we throw up the white flag, relinquishing the game? Eventually, Rabbit, who has become more sly and cunning by being chased, cuts a deal with the wolf. Wolf says, I will not give you a head start, but I will make you faster. Rabbit replies, as I become faster, so you will too. All your senses will sharpen, your sight, your smell, your hearing too but I will not let you catch me. I will get better at hiding. And so it went. Wolf works harder to catch her prey and rabbit gets stronger, faster, and better. Locked in this eternal loop, they will never not need each other. There are moments when rabbit and wolf marvel at the not so lengthy thread connecting them and wolf will stop to sing her song. Rabbit will stop to listen and out from her open mouth pours the moon. Ow! in my story. <laughs> All creation begins again. Sometimes I'm the rabbit, sometimes I'm the wolf, and still others, I am the moon hanging low, pregnant with her soundless song. So in this context, sitting here today, as I said, I could interpret the wolf in my dreams as the trickster, that wild essence of my own soul, inviting me to play, but of whom I was also afraid. She becomes rabid when she's ignored. She chased me when I ignored her. Trickster is a shapeshifter. She moves through her embodiments of the moon and the lunamals and the rabbit and the wolf. And she teaches us that we can be both soft and strong, playful and serious. When we balance those energies, we're equipped to push the boundaries of the society that we live in to be better. We have to have that sense of playfulness, I think. We can't ascribe ourselves to the margins of that society if, of course, we've never actually been part of it. But we can. This is where um, our, our existential freedom 
is different than our situational freedom. As we develop an adult spirituality, we can decenter ourselves. We can existentially identify with the margins and commit ourselves to examining and dealing with what keeps the kingdom from expanding. This is, as Martin Buber said, I cannot become without you. If I travel and see you as they, then I will never see you. Right. And this is not, moving to the margins is not an act of charity or pity. I feel sorry for them. It can include repentance, but more than anything, it's an act of solidarity that really believes in shared dignity. The kingdom is not the center, contrary to our popular images of what our culture has taught us of the castle on a hill. It extends past the edges, and it howls new life into being, just like La Loba. If anything about a mysterious, unknowable God is certain to me, <laughs> paradox right there, it is that God is a God of the edges, constantly changing shape. If the reality of the universe is continual expansion, then that must also be true from my perception of God. The fact is that the kingdom may never be fully realized in the way that we think unity implies, but it's that hope that drives us, the living as if it's possible. I was thinking about in between I've never taken this much time with the Lord's Prayer, really going line by line. In between each line, there's also this space. There's a space for breath, space to let the words kind of tumble over you. And in that space, there's a whole nother prayer that enters in. And this is a prayer, sometimes it's silence, but this prayer filled that space for me this week. This is from the book of Padre Gautur. Mm. God of fear, God of the night, of the expectation, you visited shepherds in the night with songs and sights of joy. In all our nights, turn us toward hope, because hope might just keep us alive. Thy kingdom come. Mm. There it is. Forgot to go to that slide. So, um... I want to talk about your dream just a second. Yeah. It was delightful to hear that dream. And, of course, I read it as we were working this week. But uh, <clears throat> the hardest thing to do in interpreting a dream is to um, get it that the dream exists to teach the ego something. Mm. And so when you were young, your ego was in flight from this part of yourself. And as you had a, a reconciliation in the dream, you entered into a field of playfulness mm. in order to get, to, to, to kind of absorb what that energy was. Yeah. It's a beautiful dream. It's, I, it's funny, just writing it this week, reusing that passage, how I wrote that story a couple of years ago, I saw it differently. Uh-huh. As we're working on the trickster archetype, I that's what that is. She mm -hmm. just was inviting me to go, hey. Yeah, when we're being when when we're being chased by something in the dream. Robert Johnson said, in active imagination, enter re-enter the dream and stop and say, What do you What do you want to tell me? Well, yeah, of course I here? didn't know that when I was five, of course six, not. seven. Of course not. I'd love to have that dream again today. 
and just go, what do you have to tell me? Yeah. Well, you can have that dream in active imagination. Yeah. And I want to say, and I know that people take offense at this, but I want to say that, that, that one of the ways that tricksterism plays in every culture is through punning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think, it's going to sound judgmental because I love puns. I think it's a way children learn language, by the way, uh -huh. through punning. But I think that people disdain it because it does turn things upside down. It right. changes the rules and, you know. Yeah, that's so funny. Today, Josh said to Evan, I don't even remember about what, he goes, well, that way, son, you can kill two birds with one stone. And Evan goes, I don't want to kill any birds. <laughs> and, you know, but learning how to interpret language. Yeah. 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 I have a lot of trickster in me. Oh, really? I just never would have guessed, Bill. <laughs> now you're being sarcastic. <laughs> so Sarcasm is another form of trickster. <laughs> one of the ways that, that trickster archetype can function is to help get us out of duality. And, and uh, th that's what Jesus did. He was a non-dual teacher, and that's why he didn't answer questions directly. He told stories. He pulled people into another way of thinking. And if we keep living in this divisive world of one group against another, one being right and the other being wrong, I've got the truth and you don't, uh, we're, we're never going to experience peace. We'll always blame and condemn the other side, all the time not recognizing the way we are complicit in how things are the way they are. We have to work on ourselves. We have to bring enlarged being into the world. That's our job. To grow, to have a commitment to growth at every level of, of our lives. Um, we have to figure out ways to work with others, especially those uh, whom we condemn. Somewhere in her writing on her website, Ilya Delio gave an example of somebody who was trying to work to bring reconciliation in the Middle East. And they got Israelis and Palestinians who played music together to create an orchestra. Hmm. They played music together. That transcended. There was another way to, to think about that. A number of years ago, in trying to assist my clients, especially in, in coming to terms with combative relationships, you know, we talked about the parent-child relationship, uh, or with other family members, I came up with a process that I called doing judo. Mm -hmm. uh, doing judo, in contrast to pugilistic fighting, is taking the energy of someone and just pulling them on over. And I want to credit a particular client. I have permission to do this. That happened years ago. And a friend of mine, Don Williamson, who died last year, mm -hmm. with really helping me understand what doing judo is like. It takes work to learn how to do judo. Uh, I'll give you an example that I got from my client. She had in-laws who were explicitly um, and abusively racist, and she did not want her children to be influenced by the comments the grandparents might make in the children's presence. So she got to the point of refusing them 
refusing to allow them to be with the grandparents unless she was present. And even then, the grandparents would occasionally say something that was racist. And she, she had a way of dealing with it, which I call doing judo. So one of the grandparents said something explicitly racist. And she said, um, Henry, that sounded racist. Hmm. I didn't know you were racist. Are you racist? Yeah. Stopped them dead in their right. tracks. Yeah. Um, an example, uh, somebody years and years ago when I began deconstructing teachings about the Bible came up to me after class one day <laughs> and, and said, I get it. You don't believe in this and you don't believe in this and you don't believe in this. Just let me ask you this. If you were to die tonight, what would happen to your eternal soul? <laughs> you told me this story. And I said, if I die tonight, my soul's going to be where it is right this moment. Mm -hmm. In the sacred heart of God, where could I go? That's judo. That's not being argumentative. It's not being defensive. It's not even being reasonable. And, and um, that is a way to stop some of the divisiveness that, that is going on. Now, although, and I want to say Jesus did this a lot. He, and doing judo is not being passive, by the way. Jesus was not passive. He was just nonviolent. And there's a difference between those two. Those are radically different things. We talked about this when we were going through an earlier part of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you're familiar with uh, sayings that come from part of chapter 6, I believe, where Jesus said, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek. If someone... Demands to your cloak, give him your, uh, your outer garment, give him your inner garment as well. If somebody, a Roman soldier compels you to walk a mile, walk two miles. And those, I think, those of us who heard those growing up in church probably had, had the impression that they were teaching us to be passive, but really they're very creatively hmm. aggressive things. So in the day that Jesus lived, if, um, and talk about this in two Sundays when we talk about forgive us our debts. Indebtedness was a huge problem for people. Most people were poor. They didn't have enough money to get around. So if they borrowed money, it was easy not to be able to repay it. Frequently, they would sell themselves into servitude for it. But if you were walking down the street, somebody that you owed money to, which would be above you, encountered you and demanded your cloak, by law, had to give it to them because it was a pledge of payment. It was like a security thing. And Jesus said, if they do that, give them your inner coat as well, which means that you would be standing there nude. And in that culture, it wasn't so bad to be nude as it was to see somebody who was nude. If you saw somebody who was nude by Levitical law, that made you unclean. So the person who stripped bare just put the person who had demanded that <laughs> in a really, really bad, awkward position. bad position. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So this teaching assumes that someone in the power structure loaned money to one of the expendables. They 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 had a way to get one up on it. They were doing. Judo. I love that 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 interpretation is so cheeky. 
Well, the, all three it's of them so are. It's so cheeky, yeah. I know we, we don't have time to do yeah. all three of them, but, but anyway. The point is that the community of empowerment is to be a community of equals. And if you wanted a spiritual practice that will guarantee enlarged being for you and for the world, that's it. It is one of the first things one of my first spiritual teachers ever said to me. I'm going to give you the principle of equality. You work on that and it will take you home. And by home, what he meant was into the arena of freedom and love that you seek. God's kingdom of love and justice becomes real when we recognize our shared humanity. And I am so grateful to Holly for sharing this with me and us. Me too. And your hair looks great. <laughs> No matter who you are, no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargoes, so watch your step, and we'll see you here next week.